And so we come this morning to Exodus chapter 23, uh, beginning in verse 20, and I'm going to read down through 24, verse 11. Let's give our attention now to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word beginning in Exodus chapter 23, verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do as they do. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice, and they said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw it against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it again in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet as it were a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate, and they drank. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. 
God, thank you for your word. Thank you for providing it to us, giving it to us, for sustaining it for us, even through the ages, passing it down that we might have it today, read in our presence. We ask, O oh God, that you would now grant us more than physical hearing, grant us spiritual hearing and understanding. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things. Teach us and train us, correct us, rebuke us. Oh God, do your work by your spirit in our hearts that we might be made more and more like Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would help your people, encourage them through the message, strengthen them, help them to stand. Lord, give them a greater, a greater glimpse of your glory and grace for them. Help me, your servant, oh God, protect me from error. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you. You are our rock and our redeemer. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my earliest childhood memories is of a poster that hung in my bedroom above my bed. The poster was a picture of Fozzie Bear. Some of you know who that is. Some of you likely don't. Uh, one of Jim Henson's Muppet characters. And in this picture, Fozzie the bear has a camera strapped around his neck, and he's holding a pen and a small notebook. On his head is a hat, and on this hat is a tag that is pinned to it, a tag that says, press. One word, press. Now, the memory I have isn't so much of what was on the poster, but what I did with this poster. You see, I thought that the tag, which said press, was a sort of magical button. I thought that if I pressed it, something amazing would happen, right? Like Fozzie would come to life, invite me into his world, and take me on trips where we would write down all of our adventures in his little notebook. But no matter how many times I pressed that button that said press, it never happened. It's okay to laugh at me. So many questions, right? I actually still ask those questions myself. Uh, when most kids had posters of sports stars or cartoon heroes or muscle cars, you're probably thinking, why did Pastor Dan have a poster of Fozzie Bear on his wall? What exactly made him think that a magical world existed beyond a poster? And why did he not figure out that Fozzie was a member of the press? A reporter? Not the sharpest knife in the drawer? Did the camera and notebook not give it away, Pastor Dan? I know what you're thinking. So many questions, right? Well, that, I don't even remember how old I was. I'm just going to say really young. Okay. Uh, it may not be one of my finer intellectual moments, but it does so happen to provide a very fitting illustration for us as we come to this passage here in the book of Exodus. The reading of this passage presents us with a picture. In fact, I should just go ahead and say it. It's pictures. There's lots of pictures here. A divine, protective, angelic presence. Uh, a land of promise. An altar surrounded by 12 pillars. Offerings being made and blood, so much blood, right, being poured out and thrown and sprinkled around. A, a mountain with God himself at the peak and then all this sapphire and beauty and beholding of God. 
wonderfully vivid portraits. My question is, do we truly understand the picture? Do we truly understand what we're seeing? Are we passing up the obvious in order to fancy ourselves with our own imaginations? Are we perhaps embracing something other than the divine reality that is as obvious to us, should be, as the nose on our face, or maybe I should say the press badge on our hats? So my goal this morning, my goal in expositing this passage is to help you see the obvious in this passage. Admittedly, there are some details here that we may never truly understand on this side of heaven. And we have to be comfortable with saying we just may never understand. But without a doubt, and I'm convinced of this, there are very obvious truths in this passage. Truths that not only help us understand more about God and and God's will for his people, but truths that serve to encourage you and me to, to sustain us as we live for him today and await as we all are, that final day when we will be with him in the true promised land of heaven. We just sing about that. Oh, what a glorious day that will be. So the first of these obvious truths is summed up in one word, personal. The word personal. If you're taking notes, and I know many of you like to, this is the first of four summary words that I'm going to use to make up our outline give you posts along our journey so you know to where we're going. The first is personal. We've spent the last two weeks together in Exodus chapters 20 through 23 up to this point, looking at, you'll remember, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, or the Ten Words, right? The Ten Commandments. As well as last week, we looked at the Book of the Covenant. You'll remember that the Ten Commandments are God's moral law. These are God's absolute principles that he's established for his people, for all time. Laws that even endure to today. The book of the covenant, on the other hand, the what follows the Ten Commandments, the book of the covenant are what we call civil law. Laws that instruct the people on how to live in their day-to-day lives based on the absolute principles contained in those Ten Commandments. So, whereas the moral law, we say unequivocally, is enduring even to today, the civil law given here is for the people of Israel for this particular time. It's not like they're bad and we throw them away. There's a lot of good instruction there. It's God's word, right? So we see that, but we're not to transfer it one-to-one to today. We're to continue, as we do, even now, develop our laws and principles based on the absolute principles of God. Do you remember last week? The book of the covenant, remember laws after laws after laws and rules after rules after rules. So many laws, so many rules. But what I want to remind you of this morning flows from what I also said last week. While the book of the covenant does contain so many laws and so many rules, remember how it began and how it ended. Do you remember? With grace. It began and ended with grace. The beginning, remember the laws about altars and sacrifices? Chapter 20, verses 22 through 26. You can mark that and go back and look. They're a reminder of the relationship that God has with his people. The fact that we can even go before him, that they could go before him and offer these sacrifices, right? That's based on relationship. 
That's grace, God's grace to them, where they can find forgiveness and renewal. It's a reminder of God's relationship with his people, a relationship based on grace, a relationship based on forgiveness and reconciliation found in those offerings. And then if you remember, at the end of the book of the covenant, which we ended with last week, laws about the Sabbath and the other festivals, they close the book and they reinforce that relationship. A relationship that is honored and celebrated by the great provision and deliverance that God supplied for his people. So while there's law after law after law and rule after rule after rule, there's also grace upon grace upon grace. Well, here's the obvious. There would be no grace if all these laws did not flow from a person. You see, these laws are personal. Laws themselves are relational. I want you to think about that for a moment. If you were to be gone for a while, if you're here, your parents, and you have kids, okay? If you were to be gone for a while, leaving your kids at home by themselves, you're just going to say, do whatever you want while I'm gone. No, you're going to write down some rules, right? You might place them on the refrigerator. Go to bed at this time, period, right? Dinner is in the freezer. Lay it out in the morning to thaw it out while you're at school and then cook it for 30 minutes at, I don't know, 350 degrees, you know, whatever you write down. Be sure to feed the dog and take him for a walk. No screens after 8 p.m. These aren't rules for my own house, but maybe these are rules that you, you give. Think about the rules. Think about that list of rules on the refrigerator. What is it? Black letters, probably, on a white sheet of paper. But isn't it more than just a sheet of paper? The sheet of paper appeared from somewhere, didn't it? It didn't just spontaneously arrive, disconnected from some personal will and being. No. <laughs> Where did it come from? From parents who love their children dearly. Yes, children, we love you. We're not just trying to punish you with rules. We love you. We wrote them down. We put them there for your good to help you. Likewise, God is reminding Israel that they are not just being obedient to some arbitrary series of laws and rules. We talk like this sometimes, don't we? Even as those not living under that old covenant, we still talk like that. How often do you hear, religion is about a relationship, not about rules? You heard that one before? Well, let's ask a question. From where do those rules come from? They originate from a personal God with whom we have what? A relationship. And if you have a relationship worth anything, what will you have? Rules. There are rules for how friends are to treat each other. Spoken and unspoken, right? There's rules about how a husband and a wife live with and love each other. And yes, how children and parents relate to each other. There are rules in community that you live by every day. There's rules in business relationships that you live by every day. Just quickly, be careful of false antitheses. Be careful. It's not as though one is good and the other one is evil. The relationship is good and the rules are evil. The rules are good and the relationship is evil. No, both are good. They come from God who loves us so much so that he gave us his law. Look back to the very beginning of all these rules. Go back to the beginning of the moral law in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. How does it begin? Turn with me. I am the Lord your God 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. I am the Lord a God. I am the Lord the God. I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh. I have a relationship with you. I've brought you here to this pasture to set you free. Here's the fences. Run in this pasture and you will be safe. Break through the fence and you will fall. And you might go to your own destruction. Be careful of false antitheses. I'm not talking about we are saved by grace through faith. We know that to be true. I'm not saying we can somehow earn our salvation through works. May it never be, right? What I'm saying is that God in his personal relationship with us has established his law for us to live by. Here in this context for us today, his moral law and all how Jesus also unfolded that for us and the apostles themselves in the New Testament. We still have a God who loves us enough to teach us how to live for him. So God is the redeeming and delivering very personal God. So much so, in fact, that he goes so far as to guarantee his ongoing presence with his people. That's our second obvious truth summarized in the word presence. So you saw it. We read it already. 2320. God said he's sending an angel an angel before the people to, quote, guard them on the way to bring them to the place that he has prepared. Then they're told in verse 21, pay careful attention to this angel and obey his voice and then to not rebel against him. Because if you do, he will not pardon your transgression for God's name is in him. I know what y'all are thinking. Who's this? Who in the world is this? He's there to guard the people He's there to bring them to the promised land. Is it Moses? Or Joshua, maybe? Oh, wait, he said he has the power to forgive sin. <laughs> no man can do that, right? That, that was leveraged against Jesus. He said he had the power to forgive sin. Pharisees like, no, only God can forgive sin. He's like, gotcha. I, I am God. Forgive sin. So it can't be Moses or Joshua, right? So who is it? Let's just say many trees have given their lives for the many theories and writings on this subject. And if you've got a few hours, I can review it for you. Kidding. I'll be honest with you, we may never truly know. But let's consider what we can know. Isn't that what we should do? Go to God's word, what can we know? And I'll give you the obvious. We've actually seen this angel before. You remember Exodus chapter 3? Basically, verse 2, you can turn back there if you want. Moses comes to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, right? He comes there, and what happens? We're told in verse 2 of chapter 3 that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And back then, you can go back and listen to that sermon if you want. We made the case that this is the angel of Yahweh. This is the angel of God himself, an, an appearance, an appearing of the divine, what theologians like to call a theophany, so... God appearing, theophany. It's not the only time we've seen this angel. Turn with me to Exodus 14, 19 and 20. I love that sound of pages turning. 14. 
19 and 20. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel, you see, the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So the, the cloud and the pillar leading them, but also the angel of the Lord is there just before they crossed the Red Sea. Many say, and I, I agree, perhaps it is even this angel that appears to Joshua in Joshua chapter 5. Remember the captain of the Lord's army? Some even say that this angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate appearing of the Messiah, of Jesus himself. Perhaps it is. We can't know for sure because scripture doesn't make that exact connection. But here's what we can know. This is a personal presence of God himself with his people. God is with his people. He's present with his people. And so we see that the people, they are to obey this angel. When they obey him, they're obeying God himself. As they fail, they're told that he will forgive them. How can he do that? Because he represents God himself. And as the people live according to God's law, it is this angel, it is God himself, who will bless them and bring them to the full life he has for them in the promised land. You see, and I don't want you to miss this, okay? So see that when God brought his people up, when he brings them up out of the land of Egypt, he was delivering them not to a freedom apart from him, but a freedom with him. We want to get focused on the angel and, and who the angel is, and that's okay, and that's good. But listen, don't miss the fact that his presence is with them. Just as God was there on the mountain with Moses, when the angel of Yahweh was there speaking with him, so the angel led them, and now the angel will continue to lead them all the way through to the promised land. The angel will be there. God himself will be personally present with his people. So Christians, I want you to know this. God's presence continues to be with you even today. Did you know that? God continues to be with you. He may not appear as the angel of the Lord or as the captain of the Lord's army, and he doesn't require two or three of you to be together to be present. No, he dwells in your very heart as his Holy Spirit, the third person of the divine trinity. He lives within you. You are his tabernacle. He dwells with you. These are things we're going to talk about for the next several weeks following today. The tabernacle of God. You now are the tabernacle of God. The Spirit himself dwelling within you. I don't want you to forget that because we do all too often. His personal presence is with you all the time. You're never forsaken. Remember what Jesus promised as he was about to go to the cross? I will not leave you alone. I will not forsake you. I will send another helper, another of the same kind. I'll send a helper, and he will be your guide. He sent his spirit into our hearts, and we have him with us. We have his presence. And because he's done this, because he has given us his presence, we can be confident that all of his promises will indeed come true. His spirit seals those promises Today, just as his divine presence by the angel of the Lord sealed those promises for his people. Think beyond what happens. Everyone wants to think about chapter 32, right? So Moses goes up for 40 days and 40 nights, and then all these people who were going to obey, what do they do? 
<laughs> they forget. They make a golden calf, they worship, and then the whole generation dies, they go through the wilderness, and then they finally go into the promised land, right? Imagine them in that moment, through all that time. Oh boy, you guys see God today? Is he still with us? Oh yeah, I saw the angel of the Lord, he's, he's there with us. Think about that. Yes, yeah, he's still with us, so guess what? His promises will come true, because he hasn't left us. So that's our third Our third and obvious truth from this passage is the word promise. So write that down, promise. Just look at all the promises contained in these verses. There's promises to drive out Israel's enemies before them. Promises to bless them with abundant food and abundant water. Promises to heal their diseases. Promises to make them abundantly fruitful with generations of children. And of course... Kind of the penultimate promise here is the promise to give them Canaan, the promised land. Remember, that's the same land that God had promised even to Abraham. If you look at verse 31 there in chapter 23 again, God says, I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the Euphrates. This is like saying your border shall be from New York to San Francisco, from Maine to California. We, we get that in our head, right? Some of us might be better at geography than others. From sea to shining sea, right? We get that idea. That's what God's saying. This will be your place to dwell. They knew these borders, right? This will be your place to dwell. So many promises. So many promises in this passage. Promises from an always present and always faithful personal God. But what does the history of Israel tell us? The history of Israel tells us that they didn't realize the full reality of these promises as they're given here. This generation didn't. So what gives? Is God not faithful? Paul asked this question over in Romans chapter 9. What's the answer? May it never be. No. Here's what I want you to see. I don't want you to miss this. Look at the very first three words of verse 30. Look at those. Little by little. Little by little. Now, there's some immediate context for them. This is actually really good. I mean, if God had driven out all of Canaan before them, it would have just become a wasteland. They wouldn't have even been able to live there. So there's also some strategy here from God, right? Take it over time so that they can then set up here, start the process of taking care of the land, and then go to another and to another. But look, this is what I want to focus on. Little by little. That should resonate with you if you're a believer, if you're a Christian living for Christ today. You know, sometimes, and I love this, we, we see sudden and overwhelming breakthroughs and victories, don't we? The, the surprising sudden healing of a disease, the instant freedom from a besetting sin, uh, the overnight maybe even over our restoration of a broken relationship. It's like, boom, wow, look what God did, right? Of course we see that. But you don't experience as many of those as you experience the little by little movement of God in progressive yet still moving forward wonderful ways. Am I right? It could be hard, right? God, I just, I just want to get through this. I just need to get through this. He's like, I'm bringing you through it. Little by little, bit by bit. Our patience runs thin. Our endurance gets shaken. 
But God's promises do not. They do not get shaken. They are sure and steadfast. What he promises, God will fulfill. And just as this promise of a promised land to Israel was really just a type and a shadow of the promise of the true promised land of heaven. So listen, we can be sure that little by little, God is bringing us, even today, to the promised land. Little by little. We can be sure that what Jesus said is absolutely true. We saw it earlier in our words of assurance from John 6, 40. Jesus will raise his own up on the last day. He will. If you belong to him, if you are united with Christ, all his promises are yes. You will be with him forever in heaven. God will bring you safely home. And so because we can be sure that he will most certainly keep his promises, we can truly experience what is our fourth and final obvious truth found in this passage. One word, proud of myself, it also begins with a P. Managed to get four of them. From our text, actually. Peace. The fourth and final obvious truth summed up in the word peace. So chapter 24, which we'll come back to a little bit next week as well, as we tend to do in these sermons. Chapter 24 presents something not altogether familiar to us. But it is something for these people in this time, in Moses' time, these Israelites who have come up out of Egypt. They would have been very familiar with what's happening here. So again, as I often say, put yourself in their sandals, all right? Put yourself in the historical context. They are undergoing what is called a covenant ceremony. And it's a ceremony that that serves to seal, right, to to finally fulfill a relationship between two parties. So you'll notice in the text, as I read it to you, and as you may have read it, you'll notice that representatives of the people come before God. God's laws are read before the hearing of the people, and the people agree to abide by those rules. It would have been very common in the day to sacrifice animals upon doing this, and this signifies Why sacrifice? Because what we're agreeing to in this covenant has life and death consequences. If you don't keep your end of the bargain, there will be death. This type of covenant ceremony was very common in what we call the ancient Near East. So why we read that and go, well, this is weird. What's going on here? You may have thought that with Abraham as well. No, this is very common in this day, but this is not a standard fair covenant ceremony that is taking place. This is not an agreement between some earthly king and his subjects or one king and another. This is the creator, king of the universe, ratifying his covenant relationship with his chosen people, those whom he had promised to take for himself. This covenant here is a continuation of what we call the covenant of grace that God had already established with his promise of one to come in the garden through Noah, through Abraham, now to Moses, what we call the Mosaic covenant. Here in this covenant ceremony, God is present. He's not only there on the mountain, but notice that God is represented by the altar that is there at the foot of the mountain. You can see it there in 21.4. Israel's represented as well. There's 12 pillars around this altar representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Notice that there's two offerings made. There's burnt offerings and peace offerings. These are sacrifices for sin that point to the fellowship that God's people have with him. 
Now couple those two sacrifices all the way back to when God brought them out of Egypt to the sacrificial blood of the lamb that protected them from God's wrath, from that final plague that was to come. And you can see that these offerings serve as ongoing signs. Signs that point to the reality that God, the personal God, is in relationship with his people. God has a relationship with his people. And so this covenant as well is sealed in blood. It's there in verses 6 through 8. Half of the blood is poured on the altar. And the other half is thrown. Literally sprinkled onto the people. Think about that. Remember there's 600,000 men. So probably 2 million people. Y'all thinking that's weird, right? It's blood being thrown and sprinkled upon the people. What's this saying? What is this saying? Well, the author of Hebrews in chapter 9, and we're going to use that as our affirmation of faith a little bit later, he helps us to understand that this somewhat grotesque to us display demonstrates not only the forgiveness of sins, that it requires the shedding of blood, but it is that by blood we are washed clean. It represents that it is by blood that we have peace with God. So yes, this picture is unfamiliar to us. It might even look strange, but it points to a great reality. The great reality is this, that not only does Israel experience an ongoing peace with God as this ritual of sacrifice is repeated throughout this age, but it serves to point to what? The once and for all final sacrifice of the coming Messiah, the one whom we now celebrate, the one who has indeed come, Jesus Christ, the blood that he shed on the cross for our sins, the blood that washes us and makes us clean, his death that reconciles us to God, that justifies us in God's sight, and that gives us what? True peace with God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We all know what it's like to have enmity in our relationships. You can call it what you want, bad blood. I won't sing that song. Animosity. Some of you are like, what? Okay, got it. Whatever you want to call it. Everyone here, young and old, knows the turmoil of strained and broken relationships. But for all that's going on here, don't miss the relational part of this ceremony. This ceremony in and of itself is pointing to the ongoing sacrifices that the people of Israel will offer to show that they are in that relationship with God. We're going to obey his law. We're going to do what he says. We're going to offer these goats and bulls and pigeons and all these other things. We're going to do it for the forgiveness of sins. But you know what? It's not going to finally bring them the peace they're looking for. Don't miss this. This was all pointing to our Lord Jesus Christ who went to the cross and died on the cross that we might have true peace with God. And this is transcending peace. 9 through 11 should blow your mind. This should just blow your mind. God is there on top of the mountain. There's this like levels that people get to go up, right? It can be confusing reading these passages because Moses is going up and down the mountain. He must have been pretty fit, right? 
He's gone up and down the mountain all this time. But he, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, the 70 elders, they behold God. And they don't die. So I don't know if they just get a glimpse of him or all of him. Is going, I don't know. I can't answer that. The text doesn't tell me the whole thing. But if that doesn't signify the peace to come, I don't know what does. Enmity is gone. God allows them to get a glimpse of his glory. That's what happens on Sundays, right? We come, we gather around to worship the risen king. We hear the word read just as the people do. We actually participate in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, a seal of God's great promises upon our hearts. We come, we get a glimpse of the glory of God as his people come together and we worship him in spirit and in truth. And it's all doing the same thing. It's pointing to that final day when we get to see him face to face. Do you really understand that? You don't get to just see Jesus. You get to see God, the Father. I don't know what that's going to be like. I'm undone, right? You get to be face to face with him. So I want you to leave here this morning encouraged. I want you to be encouraged from these four truths. I want you to be encouraged by the personal nature of God, how he relates to us. I want you to be encouraged by the ongoing presence of God as he dwells with us by his Holy Spirit. I want you to be encouraged by the unbreakable reality of God's great promises. And I want you to be encouraged by the eternal peace with God that is ours through Jesus Christ. And you're going to leave here today, and I want you to be thinking still about maybe even gazing again, turning back in your Bibles upon these pictures. I want you to have a greater understanding of God's will for us and his work in your life. And here is what I hope to leave you with. The work that God has began in you, he will bring it to completion. You might be like, I'm a mess. God's got a lot of work to do. He never fails. What he's begun, he will bring to completion. God will sustain you. He'll work in you little by little, a lot by lot sometimes, until that final day when you get to experience the fullness of his overwhelming grace upon grace upon grace. Amen and amen.